All right, as Jason said, we're going to be in uh, John 2 today. So if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Um, so I'll give you a second to, uh, to find it. Um, this is a story about Jesus turning uh, water into wine at a wedding. So uh, I'm going to pick up in verse 1 and go to verse 11. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now, draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. This is the first, um, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you use broken vessels to bring yourself glory. Thank you that you have come to redeem us, that you have given us the truth, that even while we were your enemies, that you reached out to us in love. I thank you for this passage, and I pray, Father, that you will use it to enliven our hearts, to stir us up toward love for you and toward love for others. And I just pray that this time this morning would be fruitful because you've been here, and I pray that we will drink from your word, Lord, and that our hearts will be encouraged. In your name, amen. One of my favorite Christmas movies is Elf. And if you haven't seen it, it's very heavy with Christian theology, so it's worth seeing. Um, if you haven't seen it, hence, that's why it's about an elf. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's about this guy, Buddy, who is actually a, a man. It's played by Will Ferrell. So he's this six foot three man who is raised by elves and thinks that he is an elf. And so when... Finally, they break the news to him that he's not a real elf. Um, he wants to go meet his dad who lives in New York City. And so um, he makes the trek from the North Pole down to New York City. His dad works in the Empire State Building. He has kind of a big shot job. He wears a suit. And uh, so Buddy shows up in his full elf gear because those, those are his clothes. It's not a costume for him. And he goes into his dad's office, and the assistant sees Buddy come in, and she thinks it's a singing telegram because he's a six-foot-three man dressed in an elf costume. So she calls everybody around from the office, and Buddy, and she says, okay, yeah, here's your dad, here, here's Walter's office. So he walks into his dad's office, and they're just staring at each other. And so finally his dad says, okay, sing a song thinking that it's a singing telegram. So then he proceeds to make up this song on the spot about him being his long lost son and he's his dad 
And at the end, he says three times real loud, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then he just stops the song. And so everybody's standing around and his dad is looking at him and he just says, that was weird. And then he goes back to work and everybody else is standing around saying, that was weird. And so you probably obviously know why I told that story, but let me connect the dots in case you don't. Um, I think a lot of times when we read this passage, we can be like, that seems kind of weird. Jesus turned some water into wine. But, and that's how I've read it most of the time that I've read it. But recently God kind of opened it up and illuminated some things for me that were really encouraging. And I'm hoping he'll do the same thing here so that we're not like Buddy's dad who just doesn't realize this is his son and this is a time for them to have, you know, um, a hallmark moment and turns around and goes back to his work. So um, this sign is one of Jesus's more well-known signs where he turns water into wine. Um, But I don't think a lot of times we fully understand maybe the significance or what God wants to teach us through it. So in John's book, Jesus does seven signs. So John includes seven signs that Jesus does that all point to him being the Savior, that all point to him being the Messiah, the one who's come to rescue sinners. And um, if you read John 20, verses 30 and 31, which is near the end of the book, John says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may find life in his name. So John's telling us the whole reason that he wrote the book of John is because he wants us to realize who Jesus is, that Jesus has come so to, to where we can make peace with God, where we can be accepted as God's children. And so the fact that he includes this miracle, this incident in the book is not an accident. It's intentional and it's meant to point us to who Jesus is, um, to help us believe in him. So there are four main points that I want to highlight from the text. And we're going to go through the verses to, to see those points. Um, I'm going to give some background first and then we'll go through the points. So the first is, Mary expected things from Jesus, and we should too. So when Mary hears that the wedding has no wine, the first thing she thinks of is, I, I need to, Jesus can help in this situation. I need to go talk to him. Um, so let me know if I need to use a different one. Um, the second one is, God wanted us to dwell on that one for a second. The second one is, Jesus knew his purpose So we're going to see that he came to earth knowing how things were going to end up for him, that he was going to be killed by sinners that were going to turn on him. Jesus knew his purpose and he faithfully fulfilled it. Um, God knows, cares about everything in our life, even small details. So I think when we look at through verses nine through or six through 10, we're going to see there are a lot of nuance and details that are included and God is working through those um, and, and it's not insignificant. And then finally, the passage closed with, God moves for his glory. So God is most passionate about his glory. That's how we feel most satisfied, most complete, is when we are pursuing his glory. And so um, that's how this kind of this whole passage ends. It's the very beginning of the disciples beginning to believe that Jesus is actually who he says he is. So let me get some background first. Um, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus, 
also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. I think it's easy to read that scene about the wedding and kind of see it through your 21st century lens of, you know, when we think of going to a wedding, we think of probably going to a church. A bride's going to walk down the aisle in a white dress. They're going to say some vows. There's going to be an awkward kiss at the end. And then we're going to go to a big party. There's going to be a reception for maybe, you know, two, three, four hours kind of tops. And then the bride and groom are going to go away for a week or two. And we're going to all go home and go to sleep and kind of go back to our normal lives. But in Jewish culture in this day and time, a wedding experience was very different than what we picture. And so I think it's helpful to go back to get an understanding of, of kind of what the situation is there. And then. Don't worry. Don't look at her. Look at me. Um, so the handheld, I don't feel quite as much like Justin Bieber, but it's okay. Um, okay, so this is not a 21st century wedding. This is a 2,000-year-ago Jewish wedding. And uh, D.A. Carson, in his commentary on this text, talks about how uh, weddings in that time could last up to a week. That it was kind of, it could be a week-long festival of kind of, you know, everybody participating. Um, the other thing that's interesting to note is in that day and time, the groom's parents bore most of the financial responsibility, unlike today where it's mainly the bride. Um, I have two daughters and I'm going to be proposing that we switch to this system. So I would appreciate your vote when it comes up, um, when, when I push that forward. Um, the other thing is, it's always embarrassing to have a party and run out of stuff, right? You never want to run out of food or um, whatever it is that you're serving. You don't ever want to run out. And so there's some similarity between then and now, but it was very different in that culture in that um, that was a culture that was based a lot on honor. And so you never wanted to be shamed. Um, we still see this today some in, in other cultures um, in the Mideast and, and in the East, not so much in our culture, which is not as much of a shame-based culture, um, but it would have been really embarrassing, and this would have really opened this family, especially the groom's family, up for potential, not, not just gossip, but even slurs of people really, um, you know, frowning upon this. And Leon Morse, in his commentary on this text, goes so far to say that it would, you could even be legally liable. Um, he said they were legally required, meaning the groom's family was legally required to provide a feast of a certain standard. So if you didn't meet that standard, then you might even be opening yourself up to be, to be sued for somebody to take you to court. So this is an embarrassing thing, but it's a, it's a much more serious thing than maybe what we would kind of picture when we think about, you know, um, oh, hey, man, that was, an, that was, remember we went to that wedding and they ran out of, you know, they ran out of cake and I didn't get to eat any of the chocolate cake and I was really mad. I mean, it's more than that is going on here. Um, Jesus comes with his disciples, so um, 
is likely that this wedding that they're at is a really close friend, potentially even a family member. Now, if you read John, right before this, there in John, he's talking about when Jesus calls the disciples. And in John, he only talks about the calling of five disciples. He doesn't talk about the calling of all 12. So we don't know if Jesus is there with just the five or if all 12 of his bros are there and they're hanging out at the wedding. But it's a close enough relationship that Mary's there, Jesus is there, and then these close friends of Jesus are there as well. Some commentators have even speculated that maybe Mary had a role in the wedding, that it was somebody close enough that she had some kind of role, and so that's why she feels the, the burden to take the lead and go talk to Jesus about this. Um, but anyway, so just kind of keep those things in mind as we go through the passage, that it's not exactly the same of what you would picture today. And this is a very, um, you know, it's a culture that's focused mo mostly on agriculture. So there aren't a lot of standing grocery stores where you can just maybe sneak two people out to go make a, a run to the store, get some bottles of wine and come back and everything will be fine. So, you know, there, there's not an easy, quick fix to this solution. All right, so let's jump into the first point. And we're going to spend some time in verses 3 and 5 and then come back to verse 4 for the second point. So Mary expected things from Jesus, and we should expect things from Jesus too. So um, we don't know why they ran out of wine. Uh, I'm going to read verse 3. It says, When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. By the way, if you read John's Gospel, he does a lot of third-person referring. He doesn't say Mary. He never refers to himself as John. He always says the disciple whom, you know, whom Jesus loved. Or, so he, he doesn't always, you know, call out people by name. But that, we know that's who he's talking about, Mary. Um, now, we don't know why they ran out of wine. It could have been due to, to that they were, you know, just not a, they were a couple or a family who did not have a lot of money. So they kind of bought as much as they could, and they were hoping for the best that it was going to last. But, you know, they had enough wine for three days, and now they're in day five or something, and they're out of wine. We don't know exactly why. Um, it could have been poor planning. Maybe they only thought it was going to go so long, or only so many people were going to come. And, you know, it got bigger or lasted longer than they thought. Uh, but either way, they're at a point uh, where they may be running out of wine. Um, sorry, not maybe. They did run out of wine. Let me be clear on that. Um, so Mary must have seen some interesting things because she goes to Jesus with the expectation that he's going to do something. And I think it's important to remember all that Mary's been through. So at this point, Jesus is now more than 30 years of age. We don't know how old he was, probably somewhere between 30 and 35. Um, she has seen a lot. I mean, if you have kids, if you think about being a parent of a kid who never sinned, that would really be different than what we've experienced today. And we know that Jesus had siblings, that he had other brothers and sisters, okay? And so if you have kids, undoubtedly, you have come in in the middle of a fight where people are screaming, right? One's going, rah, 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 and, the other's going rah, rah, and then you just say, stop, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. And sometimes you don't even care because you're just at the edge and you just want them to stop talking and go to their rooms. So Mary has never dealt with any of that with Jesus. In fact, I mean, if you have kids, unfortunately, probably most of them had lied to you at some point. She never even had to deal with that. So in a way, it, might, it would be easier to be an parent because if she walks in and there's some big confrontation, she can always say, hey, Jesus, tell me what happened. And then, you know, you, can, you know that that's what happened. You don't have to worry that somebody's trying to make their side look better than the other person, that you know that that's what's going on. But she, even if you um, haven't had have kids, if you've ever been around kids, 
you know that things can be volatile, that they can turn nasty. And so she has the contrast of her other kids with Jesus. So she knows, you know, something is different about him, that God, he is fully God, fully man. Also, she had seen an angel before she was married, while she was a virgin, that told her she was going to be pregnant with God's son. So, you know, that's not an experience that many of us have had, I don't think. Um, So she had, you know, direct revelation from God. Now, we don't know, you know, how much she fully understood or comprehended at that point, because we'll look later. It took the disciples a long, long time to really realize who Jesus was. This is kind of the first step in that journey. Um, Another thing, and I think it's helpful to go back to the society that they were in. So in that society, doctors didn't know a whole lot. Medicine, there wasn't a lot of medicine that was available. And so, you know, she's been around Jesus for a long time. And we don't know if Jesus only did miracles while he had his ministry, so while he had his disciples, or if he did some things before he started. But, you know, it's reasonable to assume she may have seen Jesus, you know, heal somebody or, um, you know, do some other things that were pretty amazing before John kind of picks up Jesus's life here. So, she knew his character. She knew somewhat of his abilities, or she wouldn't have gone to him to talk to talk to him about this. And that led to her having expectations of Jesus being able to to act, to do things. And I think there's a, a there's a something that we should glean from that is that the more that we spend time with Jesus, the more we're going to understand about him, the more we're going to desire the things that he desires, the more we're going to see him act in people's lives. It's kind of this self-reinforcing cycle where the more we, we spend time with him, the more that we taste how good he is, the more that we want to be with him, the more that it leads us to give him praise, to expect things from him. And so, and I think that's what we see here with Mary and her expectations in verses three and five. Because you see in verse five, Jesus gives her his answer. He doesn't leave open the, I mean, as I read it, he doesn't say, I would not walk away from that conversation going, oh yeah, he's definitely going to take care of this. But she does. She says, it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So she didn't leave that conversation with Jesus feeling dejected or hopeless. She left feeling hopeful that something was going to happen. We don't know what she was thinking was going to happen. But she did not leave thinking, okay, this is it. We're done. These people are just going to be embarrassed. We're toast. Um, So Again, I think the main thing from these two verses is she understood who he was. And as we understand who he is, we're going to understand better what to expect from him, how to how to relate to him, and really our hearts are going to be encouraged to glorify him. So um, I'm going to move on to verse 4. Verse 4, so she says, they have no wine, in verse 3, and he says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, the translation there is, is not the best because we don't use the word woman as like a term of affection. Usually it's more kind of like you're being defensive or if you're going to, you know, pave the way for a cutting comment like, woman, don't accuse me of eating the last piece of pie. That's more kind of, of like what we would think of with, you know, the term woman. But Jesus is using it here. In fact, the NIV translates it as dear woman. So the way he's, he's not being disrespectful, okay? Again, he, he didn't sin while he was here. So he's not being disrespectful. He's not being rude to his, to, to his woman. He's not being rude to his mom. <laughs> and uh, I mean, you almost think of it, you could read it two ways. Like woman, what does this have to do with me? Or like woman, 
What does this have to do? It just doesn't translate, okay? So even if you say it nicely, it still just sounds a little weird, okay? But in that time, it sounded, um, it, it was more of a term of affection. It's almost, you know, like saying, dear mom, or, you know, um, yeah, you could think of it as like mom, a, a way that he means it. And in fact, to highlight that, um, in John 19, he uses the same term. It should be up behind me. John 19, 26 through 27. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So Jesus is is definitely not being condescending here. In fact, um, later we have this kind of tender interchange between him and his mom, Mary, and John, the disciple. And so Joseph, we don't know exactly what's happened, but it doesn't appear that he's in the picture at this point. And so him as the oldest son, you know, the the, the uh, responsibility to care for the mom would fall upon him. And so he's about to die, and he wants to make sure that his mom is taken care of. So he tells his mom, I want you to be with John. He puts the responsibility on John. I want you to care for my mom. And the scripture tells us that, you know, that's essentially exactly what happens after that. And so the same terminology that Jesus has used then is his last kind of caring, compassionate act to make sure that his mom is taken care of is the same woman word that he's using here with her. Um, and then when he says, my hour has not yet come, what he's referring to there is his coming death, the crucifixion. And if you read John 7.30 and 17.1, he uses the same terminology where he talks about the hour is not yet here. Um, and so in these, when you think about Jesus and what he did, it becomes more amazing, I think, in my heart anyway, that he knew. So most of us don't want to know, I think, when or how we're going to die, right? I mean, I don't. Um, so... Jesus not only knew how and when, but he knew why. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are in heaven, you know, just reveling in their glory. Everyone is there praising them. And he leaves that to come to earth, to be humble as a man, born of a baby, to grow up, learn how to walk, talk, all of that stuff, fully man, but fully God. And the whole reason, the whole time that he's here, he knows he's going to be killed that he's an innocent man, that people are going to turn on him and that they're going to kill him for nothing that he's done but for their rebellion against God. And yet he still does it. And so I think there, there are two things when I think about that that make my heart encouraged. One is that he would desire to do that. When we were his enemies, he would leave the throne and that he would come down to become a man and die for us. And two, he lived his whole life here, 30 plus years, and he, was ne- he never sinned. So he was never anxious or worried, even though he knew what was coming. He was never anxious or worried about it. And so whatever is in our lives that we're tempted to fear, for some people it may be death. For others it may be, you know, a variety of things. We, God can work. It should give us great hope and great encouragement that God can work in our hearts so that we can overcome those things without sin. Christ knew his death was coming, and yet he never was fearful or worried or anxious about it. He went with the total peace of God, and God offers that same to us. So I hope that your hearts um, 
are encouraged through that, and that even it provides, you know, excitement that he's going to take care of us. So I want to move now to verses 6 through 10, um, and I think we'll see a lot in these verses where God cares about everything, even very small details. Kathleen Nielsen, in her um, study on this, on, on this section of John, um, talks about how the stone water jars were probably used for ceremonial washings as symbols of Jewish rites and rituals, which had become empty and lifeless for many of the Jews. So by the time that Jesus comes, there are a lot of religious leaders. There are a lot of Pharisees. There are a lot of Sadducees. A lot of people who think that they obey the law perfectly, and because of that, God will accept them. And what they're missing, and this is what Jesus spends a lot of his time here on earth trying to to convince them of, is that the outward actions are there, but they're completely dead inside, that nothing is happening inside their hearts. And so um, to highlight this, I wanted to read a couple passages. Uh, the first one's from Amos, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. And listen for the language here. This is very, very strong language that God uses. I hate, I despise your feast. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream, ever flowing stream. So you can see God's distaste here for these kind of outward action, showing everybody that you have it all together, but inside being totally just mute and dull to what he wants to do. Isaiah, again, listen for the strong language. Isaiah 1, 11 through 14. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of, of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of the convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moon and new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So you get this sense of, God, not these people think they have it all together, and God is trying to communicate to them that they are as far from him as they could possibly be. And you see this some even with Jesus' interaction with these religious leaders. So in Matthew 15 and in Mark 7, you have these religious leaders who have these rules that say you have to wash your hands before you eat. They have all of these kind of ceremonial things, which may even be what some of these jars are used for. And so they basically come to Jesus and they're mad and they're like, hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? And this is not like a germaphobe thing. This is part of their rules that they want everybody to, to go by. And Jesus basically tells them that it's not the food that goes in your body that makes you corrupt. It's your hearts. It's your sin that make you corrupt. It's what comes out of your body, whatever's going on inside and the self-righteousness or you know, the sin, that comes out, that is showing that you're unclean, not that they're going with unclean hands to eat food. And so you get this idea that these jars 
are not something that people are using necessarily to glorify God. In fact, they're probably, you know, heaping condemnation on themselves. But Jesus chooses to use these jars. And I think what he's making the point there is he is a God of redemption. And whatever it is in your life that has been a struggle or has been dead, he can come in and he can redeem it. He can take dead things and he can make them alive. And so... um, you see this with him choosing to use these jars as a way to turn the water into wine. Um, in verse 7 and 8, I think it's there's some nuances here that are really easy to miss because you just kind of get the bullet points of what are happening. It's just You just kind of get the narration. So um, verse 7, Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now Draw some out and take it to the master master of the feast. So they took it. Um, Jesus is the only God, is the only one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, only ones that can create out of nothing. Everything that we see and enjoy, whether it's food, clothes, house, car, everything that we have that we see that we enjoy came from some kind of raw material. God can create out of nothing, what he's, which is what he's doing here. So what seems like just a list of kind of mindless details, keep in mind a couple things. One, he didn't have to do it this way. He didn't need to fill the jars with water first. He didn't even need to use the jars. He could have put the wine somewhere else. He could have been the one to take the wine to the master. But he chooses not to do any of that. He has the servants involved. He has the disciples watching. And then he actually has the servants taking the wine to the master. So... There's um, th- there's something highlighted here in that God wants to use us in his work. He doesn't need to, but he wants to use us in his work, and that actually builds our faith. So it, it, it does provide some, um, it provides some kind of underpinning uh, to the nature of the miracle. So you have these servants that are amazed by it. So they knew that they put water in these jars, and they knew that it's now wine, because they were the ones that were participating in that. Um, but if you've ever had the, the again, the main point is God wants to use us to bring himself glory. He doesn't need to. He didn't need to use these servants to make this thing happen. But if you've ever had the pleasure of sharing the gospel with somebody, especially if they responded and accepted Christ, or discipling someone, or leading others and watching their love for Jesus grow, then you know that it's God that has done the work in their hearts and not you. But your faith is built along with that also. And so God doesn't need us to get his work done. He doesn't need us to accomplish his, his, to accomplish his purposes. But he chooses to use us so that he will get the most glory and that our hearts will be stirred up and will be built in love and faith for him. And so don't miss that here that he's doing this similar to if you think about Jonah, when he ran from God and that big storm came and, this, and all of these pagan sailors throw him in, then when the storm stops, they all begin to praise and glorify God. So Jonah's disobedience was actually an act of grace toward these sailors so that they would realize who the true God was here. And so it's similar here. God's involving these servants. He's letting the disciples see all of this happen so that he'll be glorified. So on to verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn it knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. So, again, as I mentioned, God is the only being who can create. 
Nobody else that can create out of nothing. Nobody else possesses that ability. And there's a connection here back to the early part of John. So John 1, 1 through 18 is one of the more famous passages in the New Testament where it talks about um, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. In verse 3, um, so it's, it's kind of verse 2, it's hearkening back to the beginning of creation. He was in the beginning with God, he meaning Jesus. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So Jesus is essentially affirming his deity. He is affirming that he is God by creating something out of nothing, because God's the only one that possesses the power to do that. And we see that it's through Jesus, through his, his interaction with the Father, that that's how creation came to being. And so the fact that Jesus shows up here, he creates out of nothing, it's yet another sign that he is actually the Messiah. He is fully man, but he is also fully God. Um, and then in the Old Testament, Wine was often associated with God's restoration and salvation. We don't necessarily think of it that way. We probably think of it more as, you know, um, something to have with dinner or at a party. Um, but in their minds, it, it was, I mean, they drank it for those reasons too. But it had an association with God um, bringing about restoration and salvation. So um, to highlight that, I want to read a couple passages. Another from Amos. I'm sure you're expecting it, two passages from Amos when you showed up at church this morning. So Amos 9, 11 through 15 says this. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And then so you get that language there of kind of God bringing about restoration and wine, and, and food. There are other parts, but wine being a part of that. Uh, Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 says this, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in this salvation. So, um, again, Nielsen in her, in her study on John suggests that um, Jesus turning water into wine may have had a more significant uh, impact on them right away than it would for us because they see wine, again, as part of God's restoration and salvation. And so we shouldn't lose, you know, we shouldn't lose on these little details um, that Jesus is pointing to himself 
as that Messiah, as that restoration, as that salvation by turning um, the water into wine. So in verse 10, kind of closes with um, a couple of things that help seal down, no doubt, what Jesus has done, and then also help us, I think, see how God really cares about, you know, small details in our lives. So verse 10, and... uh, Well, let me pick it up in 9 again. It flows better. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, or the groom, and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus turns water into wine, but not just into wine. He turns it into good wine. Now. There are a couple of things. Some people have tried to suggest that there was wine that Jesus just watered down to make it last longer. Um, frankly, the passage refutes that pretty quickly because Mary comes and says they have no wine. She doesn't say they almost have no wine or I think they're going to run out of wine. She says they have no wine. And so we, we know that Jesus created it out of nothing. But another thing that affirms this miracle is the taste of the wine. So this master of the of the feast, of the festival, has not tasted this wine. And in fact, this wine is much better than anything he has tasted. So, you know, you have this situation where he's tasting and he's saying, man, we sh- why did we serve the box wine first? We should have been serving this wine. This is much better. And so, again, it kind of affirms that this miracle did happen. But I think it also affirms that God really does care about details. Now, Jesus didn't have to make the wine good. He could have made it bad or not as good as what they had already had. He could have made it the exact same wine they had been drinking, but he chose to make it better. And one thing that I was thinking about as as I was thinking through this is I think it's easy to feel like some details are so insignificant that God doesn't care. But the scripture tells us that not a sparrow falls to the ground that, you know, God doesn't oversee or doesn't ordain. And so um, if you like sports at all, sometimes these conversations will come up where people say, does God care about which team wins? So if there are Christians on both sides, and they're both praying to God that their team will win, and only one team can win, right, unless you could tie maybe in soccer. But, um, but you know, in other sports where you do have winners and losers, then how do we reconcile all this? And what most people will just say is, well, God doesn't care about sports, so he doesn't care who wins or loses. And um, I thought, I, I felt that way for a while, because it's how do you reconcile, right? Especially if your Tim, team has Tim Tebow and he's praying, right? How do you reconcile if, if you don't win? Um, but I think what I feel like God is, is, what is a more accurate representation of who God is, is he does care about the people on the team. And so he's going to use the victory for the people on that team for his glory. He's going to use the loss for the people on that team for his glory. So the Dallas Cowboys are going to be very refined soon, and they're going to have a lot of people who love Jesus um, because of all the losses that they've endured. But, um, but I think God does care about the, the little details in our lives, whether you think something is so small, whether it's, you know, a, a, a person or a situation, that God does, he is overseeing those, and he's wanting to orchestrate those in a way to bring himself glory. The last thing I'll mention, and I don't have it up here, but I, I, I think it's important in the passage is Jesus chooses to do the miracle. And I think as a legalist, you could come in and say, because the master says when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
Now, we don't know if that means freely, just means they have drunk wine a lot of days, or they've drunk wine late into the night, and, you know, where before they were sober, now they are not so sober. And so I think as a legalist, you could say, well, why did Jesus even turn the water into wine if people could potentially use that to get drunk? You know, he shouldn't, he shouldn't have done that. But obviously, God doesn't do things that don't bring him glory. And we see in verse 11, it wraps it up very tightly, that he did this so that people would believe in him, that the disciples would know who he is. And so you, there are plenty of examples in the Bible where we do get, it seems like God is doing one thing, um, whether it's him telling Gideon, hey, 10,000 people to go fight this army of 130,000 is too many. We've got to have 300 people. Um, which sounds crazy, but God's going to work that in a way to bring himself glory. So if you see things happening in your life, even if it's small details, that seem counterintuitive to what you think God should be doing, use that as an opportunity to build your faith and trust that God is working for his glory. We know that his word is very clear, that he only does things that bring him glory, so that we'll be most satisfied. And then verse 11, which is really kind of the the crescendo of this whole passage, um, says, But this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. So you can think of this almost as like a mini summary of the whole Bible. That God is most passionate about his glory. We feel most complete and satisfied and believe in when we believe in him and pursue his glory. And everything he does is to bring himself glory. So he's not just trying to bail out you know, uh, kind of a poor newlywed Jewish couple and save them from some embarrassment. But he is acting in a way to start to reveal that he is the son of God from heaven who's come to save us from our sins. Um, and if you think about his disciples, there's a, there's a real, I think there's a real encouraging um, point that we can glean here that these are the, it's easy to remember them as who they were at the end. I mean, these are the ones, these are the 12 men who founded the church. They're the church fathers. They're who Jesus left behind to do his work. But it took them a long, long time to get there. And it says, um, and his disciples, he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is, we don't know this is the very first step, but this is early on in their relationship. He's just called them to him. They're starting to believe and understand who he is. But it took them a long, long time. I mean, they spent three plus years with him, with him telling them the truth of God, witnessing miracles. Who knows how many people they saw healed, demons driven out. Um, And yet, even with that, and, and as you think about the end, Christian history tells us, we don't know for sure, but indicates that 11 of these 12 disciples were killed for their belief in Jesus. They were persecuted. They were martyred only because of their belief in Jesus. But it took them a long time. They're constantly getting it wrong when he asks them questions. Even when he dies, they scatter, and they don't know what's going on until he comes back and appears to them. And even right before he dies, they think he's about to go in and wield the sword and be the man, and they're going to, you know, be these little governors that have all this power. They are missing, missing, missing who he is. And so it took them a long time to get from this miracle to becoming the founding church fathers. And God reminds us in Philippians that he's faithful to complete the work that he began in us. So if you feel like you're in neutral or if you feel like you're not going anywhere or God is not working fast enough, just remember that it took these guys a long time and they were with Jesus 
talking to him, looking him in the, in the eye, eating with him for, you know, three plus years. And they saw him be killed and raised from the dead. So be patient with yourself um, if you are feeling discouraged that God is working, that he's going to use you to bring about his glory. And then finally, um, and, and you guys can come up if you want, we're going to move to communion. Uh, I was thinking about communion um, not necessarily in conjunction with, with, with us doing communion this morning, but um, Jesus has turned water into wine here again as a way to point to him being the Messiah. And so we're going to spend some time right now taking communion, which the whole point of communion is to remember what Jesus did, to remember his um, dying for us as his enemies, coming to earth, um, leaving his position um, as God in heaven so that he could die for his enemies and take our place. And so um, we're going to take some wine and some bread and enjoy communion now. And I just, if you're not a believer, this time is very important for you. Don't come up and take the wine and drink, drink the wine and eat the bread, um, also known as grape juice. Don't come up right now. But this time is important. Come and pray and ask Jesus to give you faith to believe just like his disciples are beginning to believe. Ask him to open your eyes. If you are a believer, use this time. Um, let's use this time. I'm encouraging myself too, to remember all that he's done for us, all that he gave up for us, and just how glorious he is. Um, so let's, let's drink the wine and eat the bread.